0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 13 and we're covering the period between 1652 and 1657. These five years saw the establishment of the Dutch as a refreshment station at the Cape and the increasing frustration of Jan van Riebeck who commanded the small group of sailors and soldiers who were trying to build a garden to feed the passing VOC fleets. Last episode, I explained how the Dutch were facing a problem in terms of communication. No one in the little fortress could speak Khoi Khoi, and they were relying on Khoi translators. What the Dutch did not properly understand for quite a while is just how fractured the Khoi were as a people who functioned as small clans and were often at war with each other. As we'll hear over the coming podcast, Koi hierarchy was a fleeting thing based on economic power and not laws of succession. By December 1652, the group of Koi von Riebeek called the Saldanas had migrated back to the grazing lands along the base of Table Mountain, where Kirstenbosch, Constantia and the Stienberg is today. He wrote that, The country is covered with cattle and sheep as grass. These Saldanas, or were obviously different people compared to the strandlopers, as the Dutch called the small clan living along the Cape Town beaches. There is nothing degenerate in these proud Soldanas, he wrote. They have all the traditional courtesy of the cattle keeper. As far as Van Driebeck was concerned, they were unlike the non-cattle keeping sotkwa, or sand, he was about to meet. There were 2,000 head of cattle and sheep close to the Dutch stockade, but the Khoikhoi continued to drive a hard bargain in terms of trade. The cot then began setting fire to the fanebo around Table Mountain to sweeten the vegetation for their cattle, but made sure that they extinguished the flames should they approach the Dutch camp. The Koi left the Dutch alone, but there was trouble brewing. We've heard already how by September 1652, four of the Dutch soldiers had tried to run away and had come slinking back for the traditional punishment of being hit 100 times with the butt of a musket. Through eight months of tough trading, Van Riebeek had managed to build the VOC herd, and he now had 88 head of cattle and 269 sheep. But he was finding it increasingly difficult to get the koi to part with their beasts. It was now that Harry the Strandloper, who was also the translator, visited Van Riebeek and suggested that he attack a koi called the Fishmen, which he promised would please both the Saldanas and those he called the vatamen. Van Riebeek refused, saying he was friends with all koi, and Harry left, somewhat angrily. The VOC had told van Riebeck he should not conduct any aggressive actions whatsoever and stay out of local affairs. By now, the koi had traded all the copper they wanted from the Dutch and refused to sell any more cattle. So van Riebeck sent out a party of men to try and find people further afield. By Christmas Eve 1652, they could only locate two encampments of koi. The rest had already left. These few dozen men and women were looking after around 700 head of cattle and around 1,500 sheep, but they also refused to trade. It was suddenly apparent to the Dutch that the Khoi preferred to trade the animals with the English, and this was not satisfactory. On the 28th of December, two groups of the Khoi began fighting close to the Dutch stockade, with four killed by the Tlocotla, who then promptly took off with all the cattle, but leaving the VOCs unmolested. The Dutch continued sending parties out along the Cape Peninsula, searching for Koi, and around New Year 1653, they found half a dozen small encampments around Haute Bay. The people living there agreed to trade one of their cows and a dozen sheep. New camps were then reported near Salt River. It was in January 1653 that Van Riebeek suddenly realised that the Koi wanted the Dutch to travel to their camps to trade. Previously, the trading had taken place at the fort where the Trototoi had arrived with a few head at a time. By visiting the Koi, the trade began to increase once more and on the 4th of January, 11 head of cattle and 24 sheep changed hands. The next day, 18 cattle and 5 sheep, but the Totkotkwas were already on the move, and a week later, they'd be heading northwestly westly along the Atlantic Coast shoreline between the mountains and the beach, homeward bound to Saldana Bay, 100 miles up the coast. The migrations of people across the Cape Flats had not ended. As the Totkotkwas moved off north, people who the Dutch were told were the sautcroix or Songkwa were about to arrive, and they weren't welcome, according to Harry, their translator. It seems the Sotrois were sand people who lived in the mountains around the Cape Peninsula and were feared by the Koi. It was to be some time before the Sotrois would move into the region, though, as we'll see. Before they arrived, van Riebeek ordered small parties of his men to seek cattle north-eastwards, up the coast, heading along Bay Beach. Here they found more strandlopers, who traded in hippo teeth, but had no cattle. By February 1653, the garden was producing more vegetables and fruit, and the men were happier, but then disaster. On Sunday, the 9th of February, a swarm of locusts was seen five miles behind Table Mountain and described as, as if snowflakes were falling so that the earth and sky was hardly distinguishable. The swarms struck the all-important garden on the 15th of February. This area of the Cape is not known for locust swarms, but von Riebeek was just unlucky. The garden was damaged by the locusts, but it could have been worse. For the next two months, trading continued to be sporadic until late April 1653, when another group of koi passed by, this time thought to be the kotokwa, not to be confused with the kotokwa. The kotokwa lived on the highlands above Saldana and had heard about the Dutch, and they traded 28 cattle. Then a week later, another small group passed by, trading 18 cattle for copper plates. In May and June, there was no sign of the feared Tsongkwa, nor any of the koi who moved away for winter again. The Strandlopers had popped in for a visit in May and agreed to help tend the garden, but then they left after one day without word. The Dutch were going to find it very difficult to locate labour for their refreshment station, as the locals had no interest in gardening or in fact in labouring in any way for the Europeans. Then van Riebeek decided he'd sail around the Cape towards the point, despite the inclement winter weather, and at Hart Bay rainfall didn't stop him from sailing close to the land, He spotted forests four miles from the beach and wrote later that, They are the finest forests in the world and contain spars and longest stout as one could wish to have. It is surprising to see the fine forests scattered all over the mountain slopes. This was virgin and verdant land once more, after his somewhat negative comments earlier. He found parts of the Cape now were to his liking once more. Found everywhere the finest pastures in the world, he gushed. Very suitable for planting and cultivating. A party of Trottrottrois from Saldana Bay arrived in late September with the news that a strange ship had anchored at their bay. These Trottrottrois were camped 20 miles up the coast on the way towards the bay, and two Dutch soldiers joined these men on the trip back. Then they pushed onwards. It took four more days to reach Saldana Bay, walking along the sandy beach. It was early October when the Dutchmen arrived at the bay to find, in some shock, it was a French vessel which had been operating in that area for six months. The captain boasted about the number of seals they had killed for the European fur market and they had joined the koi in hunting expeditions along Shell Point Bay. It's amazing just how anonymous some of these visitors could remain in this era. Six months and the Dutch had no idea that the French had been trading only 100 miles away for all that time. But it was later in October 1653 that Harry Strandlopers then decided to rob the Dutch of all their cattle. There were 44 beasts, and the youngster hired to look after the herd. A coy lad by the name of David Johnson had been killed. I explained last episode how the Riebeck exploded with anger as he set out to find the 44 head of cows. And yet, he was reminded about the VOC rule. No warfare, no conflict. Yet his men wanted revenge. So he sent a posse out via Constantia Neck to follow the trail, and they turned towards 12 apostles. These are a string of large mountains that extend along the Cape Peninsula on the Atlantic seaboard. They turned around once more, and it was clear the Strandlopers were not in this area, and then made their way through Hunklip close to Cape Point, but ran out of food and had to return. Van Riebeek had a crisis. The whole settlement was reduced to living off a single cow, one ox, and four calves, along with sixty sheep. Not for long, two days later, the ox and the cow died of illness, along with one of the sheep. Now there was no draft animal. No milk and no beef left for the hungry men of the fort, let alone to trade with passing VOC fleets. But all was not lost. Later in October, a group of Kototkwa men arrived and announced they had discovered Harry's strandtroopers camping out in False Bay, the other side of the mountain, so it was no wonder the posse had found nothing on their journey almost to Cape Point. Two of the stolen cars somehow wandered back into the settlement, but the main herd vanished. The Strandhubers were spotted at times moving between the north and south side of the mountain ranges strung along the peninsula, but they could not be caught. As with the previous year, the Dutch noticed then that the fires were burning on the Holland's mountain range, which lay north across the flats. There were obviously Khoi Khoi around, but they appeared to be avoiding the fort at all costs. Things were not going well at all. Van Riebeek and an armed party headed out to try and find Khoi, and wandered into a small party of Harry's strandtroopers or members of the Cape Peninsulas. The Dutch were actually not sure which they were, but they were sure of one thing. The koi they met were terrified of them having heard about the cattle rustling. They explained that Harry was behind the theft of the fort herd and supplied two more cows after some serious bartering. The Dutch ended up paying double the fee in copper sheets, but van Riebeek had no choice. He was out of milk. It was in early January 1654, that the Dutch finally met the people who much later their descendants would hunt like animals further inland. The San. At this point, however, the sang-Croix, as they were called, or the San, were feared as expert hunters and arrived in a large group of fifty. They took up a position overlooking the fort in the forest and began to rob the Dutch who wandered from the settlement. They focused on the copper buttons worn on the European outfits, and there were a number of incidents over the next few weeks. No one was killed, but the tension built. By late January 1654, ships began arriving demanding meat and of course van Riebeek had none to give. An armed raiding party from one of the ships headed inland in desperation, determined to shoot any cattle they found. Van Riebeek pleaded with them to avoid shooting the koi as all three clans on the flats and the peninsula could then use the confrontation as an excuse to jointly attack the settlement. He was aware that if this happened, and even with the Dutch weapons and cannon, they could very well be overrun. The precarious position was eased somewhat when the raiding party returned with two cows bartered fairly with the koi. But where was Harry and the fort herd? You can imagine the frustration and anger, but also the fear they were foreigners in this land. They could not speak the language nor understand the strange politics. Even the wondrously beautiful landscape of the Cape appeared to be full of malign forces stacked up against them. In March 1653, the Sotkwa and Khoi fought a pitched battle on the Cape Flats right in front of the Dutch, and the Sand succeeded in driving off 600 of the Khoi's 1,000 head of cattle. Four Khoi men died, and the Dutch surgeon back at the fort treated one of the Khoi injured. This is when the Dutch discovered that there was an unknown group of Khoi scavenging whale carcasses along the beach towards Cape Point. These people would boil down the whale fat to produce huge quantities of oil which they then stored in the hollow tubes of the kelp. They would use the oil to spread over themselves and also as a kind of margarine on the felt coarse bread they baked. On the 6th of April, the small group of Dutchmen and women conducted a solemn thanksgiving and prayer. It was two years now they had been living at the Cape. A check on the supplies showed that the rice, barley, beans and lentils were almost gone. They were in a precarious situation. Then they discovered a group of Harry's strandlopers and other Cape Koi. Van Rubik and his men recognised Harry's wives and all their stolen cattle at the Koi settlement but could not seize them. The Dutch managed to trade copper for milk and honey and the Koi then showed the Europeans how to prepare a particularly prized treat as they eyed their precious herd a mere stone's throw away. The nut of the tree called bitter almond or hoibwinkie could be roasted or dried in the sun and then ground to make a kind of coffee or even eaten. This tree is important because not only does it supply a form of food, bitter as it is, but it grows quickly and thickly. It was to become significant as it was used to make van der Beek's hedge. That would be the Cape's first formal boundary. The first time a portion of land in South Africa would be delineated as belonging to the Europeans. The tree, called Brabejum stellatifolium, can be found in Cape Town's world-class garden, Kirstenbosch, these days. Actually, part of Van Riebeek's hedge can still be found at that garden. The tree can grow to 15 metres in height, but the Dutch discovered two interesting traits that would serve them well. First, if it's trimmed, it forms an extremely dense hedge low to the ground, and secondly, it's very fast-growing. How ironic, then, that one of the first types of feinbos food that the koi show, the Dutch ends up being used as the basis of a hedge separating the white new arrivals from the black people. So by August 1654, the fort had managed to weather the third winter at the Cape and the Dutch and the Strandlopers were left on the wind-swept plains alone. The Tkotkotkwai and other clans were gone only to arrive in late spring and still Van Riebeek could not seize the cattle raided 18 months before. He used men from passing ships to help approach the scattered settlements where some koi remained but they only traded three cows in three months, winter of 1654. By November, the relationship between these two different people became even more rife as it dawned on the Koi Koi that the Dutch were not going away. Their presence had caused a political predicament for the Koi. These ancient people had always raided each other and never really got along in their different clans, but now they had a group of men and women who could change their complex relationships. The Strandlopers under Harry were clearly resentful at this point. The other Koi Koi were monitoring proceedings with a great deal of concern. By early 1655, matters came to a head. A large group of armed koi, koi men from an unknown clan were reported to be close by, and they then confronted some of the Dutch gardeners. After being invited to trade, instead they threatened to attack the fort and seize all the copper. They also said that the Dutch had settled on their land and they were very unhappy with the signs of the permanent structures being built. Remember, the fort was constructed largely of earth walls, but the buildings inside were of stone. Fifty Khoikhoi men and women then constructed their own huts along the canal the Dutch had built alongside the fort and informed Van Riebeek that it was their land and they could build their huts where they liked. Van Riebeek was in a quandary. It was risky leaving so many people so close to his fort, but it was a sensitive moment. The Dutch were outnumbered, after all. These Korykoi said they would attack the fort and proceeded to build their fires, preparing the felt for the coming herds. A tense standoff now took place, with the Dutch increasing the number of men on watch and the Korykoi squeezing them into the fort. By March 1655, there was still no sign of the Trottois who normally frequented the settlement, and it's clear by now that this is one of those moments in history where two different peoples begin to travel on a collision course facing daily decisions about how to deal with each other. Things did not improve much through the winter of 1655, but suddenly, in early June, Harry the Strandloper returned to the fort. After a long story about who actually killed the youngster watching the Dutch herd 20 months previously, Harry was reinstated as the interpreter by Van Riebeek. The man's entire family then arrived, and it's apparent that he'd been hiding from the Dutch over the Hottentot Hollands Mountains. Whatever transpired there had forced Harry back to the fort. Mysteriously, trade in cattle suddenly improved immensely. In fact, Harry succeeded in convincing passing Koi Koi to part with 67 cows, for which he was rewarded with six pounds of copper wire. It appears his transgressions were forgiven. By December 1655, more than 20,000 head of cattle could be seen grazing between Salt River and Table Mountain, and not one could be traded by Fenrirberg. You can imagine the growing resentment and anger as this garrison observed the riches of the Cape and yet were not permitted to share in its bounty. By now, Harry had led the Dutch on a song and dance for more than two years and he continued to offer trading solutions only to disappear with any copper he was given. But the fort had two other male translators by now along with a young Koi, koi teen girl called Eva who was helping describe what was really going on. One of the Koi Koi translators, Klaus Das, found out that Harry had been behind much of the trouble that Van Riebeck faced. Yet that year ended with some improvements. The Dutch had taken to storing their sheep on Robben Island, and there were now 600 along with 370 cattle on that symbolic low-lying rocky outcrop. As you can see, the desperately chaotic relationship between the newly arrived Europeans and the Africans was growing more and more complex, more and more confrontational. This was hardly going to improve after something that happened in May 1656. That was when the Rondebosch colony was founded, with half an acre of gardens being planted by the Dutch. A guard of two men was left there to ensure that the Koi, koi remained away, but the year had seen a serious drought take hold, and the little garden was close to one of the few streams that continued to flow. It was important for the local Koi to access that river. This served notice that the new people on the continent were going to expand their footprint and as usual, the people who had grazed these lands wondered what was going to happen next. It was not going to be long before they found out. Within a year, in 1657, the first European freemen or settlers were going to be allocated land around the fort and around Rondebosch. So it was then that by February 1657, one party of freemen was to settle on the far side of the Amstel or Lisbierk River near Kromboom and the other would settle at Rondebosch to the west of the same river. The colonials had arrived. Of course, Van Riebeek first met with Harry and other koi, koi and informed them of his decision. After watching the Dutch struggle in the Cape over four years, the reaction of the Koi, koi to an expanding settlement was not going to be pretty. What happens next is for episode 14. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also email me through the site desmondlatham.blog or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next. Tots